Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The other hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hello, Chris. Good to talk again. Welcome to the latest episode of The Other Hand. I want to start today by referring to an email we got on our Substack site from a Brazilian living in Ireland, Adriano, who was talking about our discussion on house prices. Okay, we've had numerous discussions on house prices, obviously, over the last couple of years. And we always make the point that while it's a crisis situation in Ireland, uh, it, it is not unique to Ireland that many countries are struggling with the problem of delivering sufficient housing. But Adriano said in the a very detailed email, fantastic email, obviously put a lot of thought into it. Adriano is quite happy with the name being used, so I'm not giving away any conferences here. Basically making the argument that while housing may be a global issue that the problems in Dublin are unique for a variety of reasons. One is the lack of density here and the fact that there's such a compact economic centre. Also that Dublin's inadequate public transportation infrastructure makes the situation here worse. And tying on top of that, the high cost in this country of purchasing and running a car is significantly higher than in most European countries. The overall cost of living here being very high. Uh, but interestingly, saying that the quality of housing in Dublin does not match the high prices and the, quali- the quality, particularly of rental accommodation, is way behind many other cities. And this is not a criticism of Ireland. In fact, Adriano made the point that loves living in Ireland, thinks it's a great country, but important to recognise what is the significant problem. I guess it is taking us to task on the points we've been making about this being a global problem, probably more unique to Ireland than we like to admit. Jim, you know more about the data on housing than I do, but is there any data on housing quality? Do we know whether that assertion, that narrative, which may be correct, do we know if there's any data to back it up? 
Uh, not that I'm aware of, Chris. I, I suspect this is very anecdotal. But yeah, no, and which doesn't mean that it's wrong, of course. No, um, but no. We, we, as 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 the BBC is, says repeatedly when it's reporting from Gaza at the moment, we haven't been able to in, independently verify these claims. So I think that's an important caveat. But it, it, that is not to deny that it may may well be true. Uh, I know that rental accommodation in the UK has been the subject of many news stories. Again, anecdotal data, but uh, saying actually the same thing. And that there have been reports from individual journalists, but also quoting uh, health authorities in talking about damp and in particular mouldy rental accommodation uh, causing illness. So again, uh, it's a small point in my defence, Your Honour, that uh, these problems are not unique to Ireland. They, they may well be uh, greater in scale. Uh, they may not be, but it's, it's hard to get actual data on this. Uh, I was reading an article in Prospect magazine only this morning about seaside towns here in the UK. And my God, the, the narrative being portrayed by the journalist about the, the state of rental accommodation in particular, but the price of accommodation in general, painted a very bleak picture. You've got two types of seaside town in the UK, one that's thriving. And he's, the journalist cited several um, seaside towns in the UK that uh, are doing very well, but they're only doing well because people from London and the Southeast have their holiday homes there. And that's pushed up the cost of housing so that anybody actually lives there is struggling with that cost. And more generally, these places, as evidence from various health studies have shown, tend to be sicker than lots of other people. And there are lots of stories and analysis of that. And where these seaside towns are not where Londoners, rich Londoners, want to have their second homes. They tend to be areas of great deprivation. Blackpool, Margate, places like that are often cited in that regard. And many a journalist has written many an article. So sorry, I'm going on about the UK now, but this is about Ireland and about the extent to which Ireland is unique. Uh, or is it uh, something, as we have said many times, aspects of the Irish housing problem are replicated elsewhere. Jim, a high-level question for you, really, which is that a lot of the problems that Ireland is facing with housing is the result of many causes. We can talk about supply and demand, we can talk about interest rates, we can talk about failures of government policy. But one key driver clearly has been immigration into Ireland. The population has gone up a lot in recent years. Is there any modern state that could have coped with that surge in immigration, that sheer number of people wanting to come and live in Ireland without experiencing these kinds of problems? At one level, my, I guess, prompt answer to that would be no. That um, And Noah Smith, actually, whom we're going to have on the podcast shortly, he wrote a piece about Ireland um, recently where he was talking about housing being the biggest threat to the Irish economy. Uh, but he did ad admit the population growth piece, the inward migration was a key contributor. So there is definitely that. Um, but it is also the case, Chris, that if, if you look at these statistics uh, between 2011 and 2022, we delivered just over 13,500 residential units um, on average every year. That is totally inadequate, even, even if the overall population had remained stagnant during that period that sort of house building would have been inadequate because of the age profile of the population and the strong growth in the household formation age group part of that population. So 
there is definitely an element in my view of policy failure here. Uh, we just didn't build enough houses. I, I don't think the population growth and the inward migration in itself um, is the whole story. There is definitely no, and, and I definitely well. didn't didn't suggest that it was the whole story. But I, I think that um, a lot of countries would have struggled with that level of immigration. And as you rightly say, the policy response to the both domestic pressures on the, the demand for housing and also the international pressures people coming into the country, the policy response has been wholly inadequate, which again, as we always do, ask raises the question, forces us to ask the question, what is to be done? And just from that very small discussion that we've just had and all the much longer discussions that we've done on various pods now, what we always end up doing is looking at data, trying to see what the evidence is. We, we give our prejudices, our assertions, our beliefs, but we always try to make them database. And the, the thing that we run into is that this is multifactorial. There are several, many drivers of this problem, and it is very, very complicated. It's very hard to get a handle on which factor is dominant, uh, which factors are the most important, which factors aren't, and therefore how does policy, what levers do you push and pull to try and alleviate all of these drivers of the housing crisis? And we, we end up by saying it's it's very difficult. Um, we do criticise where, where criticism is due absolutely on the policy front. But we also note at the end of all of that discussion, whoever's in charge is going to find it very, very difficult because there are many drivers. Some of them are not, there aren't, there isn't a policy lever marked housing crisis moving it up or down. It, it, but there is one possible solution in, in from what you're saying about the building. And I suspect that this might be the Sinn Féin solution uh, if they can pull it off, which is that the state simply decides to build 50,000 units or whatever number it is a year, that it either uses state land, expropriates, nationalizes, buys farming land that it is currently, zones new land, whatever and simply says, okay, we are going to use all of the resources of the state to build. Would 50,000 units a year for the next five years do it, Jim? Well, it, it would certainly go make a significant contribution. And I can assure you, if over the next five years we manage to deliver uh, a quarter of a million new residential units, that would make a significant contribution. It wouldn't solve the problem, but it would certainly would represent massive progress. It will be interesting to see if in power what Sinn Féin do in terms of... Because if they don't do that, yeah. um, I don't see what else they can do because they have well, set their yeah. faces firmly against the private sector being involved in yeah. any material way because the only way you can get the private sector involved is to get all the sorts of people, vulture funds, investment funds, developers, all of the people that really Sinn Féin have, in a way, demonised. So... By a process of logic, the only thing I can come up with is that point that, yes, if by just some order, some decree, some law, some rule, that they simply say, we are going to build 50,000 houses a year to solve the housing crisis. If they were able to do that, then, as you say, we would go a significant way to solving it, maybe all the way, who knows. Uh, the question then naturally arises, could anybody, let's not personalise it on Sinn Féin, could any political party, any government summon, muster the resources uh, to build 50,000 units a year? Is that, as a practical proposition, possible? It's not actually. It, it is not practically possible without a number of things happening. Uh, the whole planning process needs to be radically reformed. 
um, and people some people will disagree with that but I, in my view the planning system here is not fit for purpose but the government could but, do that the government, yeah, could, the government su- could do that it would take time though it would take you, time. no you could just pass a law saying we suspend the planning laws they're all gone yeah, but that that's not going to happen here, Chris. Okay, it's just not. I'm just dealing um, in theoretical possibilities yeah, absolutely. here. Absolutely, but but that's one area that needs to be addressed, and that that will take time because a decree overnight is not possible. So it'll take time. Secondly, the funding model for developers is broken. And, well, that's uh, why I say the government has to do it. It simply takes taxpayer revenues yeah. or borrowing yeah. or money or money printing. It can't print money because that's the ECB. So it either has to be taxes or borrowing. And simply says, okay, on this land, which we currently own because we're the government, or we are going to buy because we're going to nationalize it, or we're going to expropriate it, whatever it is, on this land, we are now going to spend X billion building 50,000 houses a year for the next five years. Yeah, and, and okay, Chris, so that, that's my second point, that uh, the funding model for development ha- would have to change dramatically. Thirdly, we would need to significantly increase the availability of service land. And I say service land because one of the problems with development at the moment is getting connected up to water and electricity is proving very problematical. So I I think there is no doubt about that. And something else I think that basically needs to happen is that we need the construction capacity to do that. So we just don't have sufficient skilled labor in the construction sector to do that just now. So there's a load of things that will need to happen to make that 50,000 possible, but it's really difficult to see that happening. I would be certain, insofar as one can be certain, that 250,000 houses over the next five years will not prove possible. So in five years' time, we will still be talking about a housing crisis here. But the hope, of course, is that some progress will have been made in addressing it. Okay, let's move on. I wanted to do a little bit on some recent Irish economic data. Uh, We got house prices for September during the week. Uh, National average house prices in the year September increased by 1.4%. But within that, there are two distinct trends. Prices in Dublin declined by 1.9%. And outside of Dublin, prices increased by 4%. So there is a divergence in the growth rate of residential property prices happening. Um, and I think uh, I, there's a couple of factors at play here. One is affordability has become such an issue in Dublin that quite simply people cannot anymore afford the prices that are being asked for in the Dublin market. So that's an adjustment. And of course, Uh, The interest rate increases we've seen over the last 18 months is feeding into that story. Um, The outside of Dublin piece is uh, driven by a lot of factors, but obviously housing is cheaper outside of Dublin. And I think the working from home and the impact of the pandemic uh, is also impacting there. So a lot of people, quite simply, are moving out of Dublin because um, it's become difficult, expensive, unaffordable and so on. Uh, But I suppose the overall picture here really is one of, um, you know, the housing market has certainly moderated significantly. And I'd be kind of surprised if that did not remain the case over the next 12 months, at least. Um, I was asked a question at a conference I spoke at during the week and I shouldn't have answered it. But where would I expect house prices to be in five years time? Yeah. Sorry, I should say two years time, which which is equally ridiculous. 
Uh, but I foolishly said I believe in two years' time, national average house prices will be about 5% below where they are today. But In real or nominal terms, Jim? Um, in nominal terms. Mm-hmm. And I caveated that I hadn't a clue anyway. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's like being asked to predict the weather on November the 20th, 2026, to be honest. You, yeah, you sound, it, you, it, you, you can talk. You can talk. You can forecast these things in general terms, but that kind of precision simply isn't possible. Uh, nobody should be asked that question. It's a nonsense question, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. And I, I say I shouldn't have answered it, but unfortunately, I did. So I'm in the public record now. It's come back to haunt me. Uh, Chris, the other piece of data actually, I think, is a much more interest, and that is the merchandise export data for September. So a few statistics here, listeners. So I apologize, but you know how much I love juicy statistics. In the first nine months of the year, merchandise exports were 6.1% lower than the equivalent period last year. I'll talk about, okay, chemical and related products down by 5.5%. And that sector accounts for 65.5% of total merchandise exports in the first nine months. So down by five and a half percent. Okay. And indeed in the month of September compared to September last year, there was a decline of 18.7%. There are two key components here on the chemical and related category. One is organic chemicals down by 16.4% in the first nine months and September on September down 37.3%. The pharmaceutical and medical products, which is the, the bigger component, um, down by 6.3%. And on a, a year-on-year basis, September on September, down 8.5%. Okay, so a, a huge correction happening there on the chemical and pharmaceutical side. And we've spoken about that. It continues to evolve. Machinery and transport equipment, uh, which is, you know, dominated by um, technology, okay, down by 15.6%. So sig- significant retracement happening in the multinational export part of the economy. The food sector, which is the biggest indigenous component of the export sector, um, expanded by 0.5% in the first nine months. But September on September, down by 11.2%. So it's a story here of ongoing weakness on the export side after years of phenomenal growth. Um, It is reflecting global trends. There's no doubt about that. The slowdown in the global economy is impacting, uh, but also the post-COVID adjustment that's happening in the chemical and pharmaceutical side is happening. And of course, where all this is really important is how it feeds into, number one, employment, over the coming months and secondly and more importantly how it continues to feed into the corporation tax take and probably the second or third of december um, we will have one of the most interesting statistical releases in ireland this year which will be the end november exchequer returns because november is one of the months where we get a huge amount of corporation tax paid so what happens during the month of november will really tell us a lot about what's really happening with the multinational part of the economy. Um, Before I hand back to you, Chris, a couple of other points to make that exports to Great Britain up by 8%. 
So Ireland continues to benefit from Brexit. I think there's little doubt about that. Exports to the United States down by 15.1% with chemical and pharmaceutical exports to the United States down by 17%. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. One of the interesting things for me about those trade statistics, which continues a pattern that you have rightly been observing over the last few months now, really, is that the the numbers are weak. Let's let's not uh, mince our words here. And we've also observed that Ireland could be seen as a bit of a bellwether for the world economy for various reasons. And it might be an indicator of things slowing down generally, which I think, quite frankly, it is. I, I do think that we are seeing a gentle slowdown everywhere and one of the interesting things that's been going on uh, really just over the last couple of weeks has been a big big shift in interest rate expectations on the back of some inflation data but also on the back of what markets expect economies to be doing going forward and I think that they are reacting to this kind of economic data weakness that we're seeing in Ireland and elsewhere and they're saying that this is the peak in interest rates. We're at it. And that the only debate now is for how long will these relatively high interest rates that we have on both sides of the Atlantic going to last. And there is a huge debate in the economics profession and indeed within central banks about, about the answers to that question. We still have a few diehard monetary hard people, hard men and women who are warning that the peak isn't in. We still AKA have dinosaurs. They are also known as dinosaurs, Jim. Absolutely. But never say never. You know, we, we always talk about the perils and risks of forecasting. There could well be something that comes along and forces them to raise interest rates further. Right now, you or I, and indeed one or two others now, can't see this. Uh, two pieces that I have drawn your attention to already, and I'd be really interested in what you've thought about these two uh, pieces of work one by a journalist, one by an investment bank. It leads me to think, yet again, that somebody has been listening to our podcasts of late, Jim, because we have Goldman Sachs in their annual outlook. Uh, this is the time of year when we get people releasing 300-page tomes on what 2024 will bring. And it's always fun to read them from a year ago to see how wrong they have been. But for what it's worth, we are at that time of year where people are saying, what's going to happen in 2024? The consensus is that interest rates will stay high for a long time. Different people think, you know, middle of next year, end of next year, maybe even into 2025. Goldman Sachs are an outlier, but tend to agree with us in saying that all of this stuff about the, the last mile of getting inflation down is complete bollocks and that inflation will continue to fall and it will open up the room, combined with the economic weakness that we've just observed continuing, 
for early rate cuts, which would be good news to mortgage holders and indeed anybody that wants to borrow money. And that's not just Goldman Sachs who's been listening to our podcast. Martin Wolf, the chief economics commentator of the Financial Times, wrote something this week saying something uh, in a different way on a similar theme in that it was coded language in the way that Martin writes, but essentially saying there is a real risk now that these central banks, particularly in Europe, have already overdone it. And if and even if they haven't overdone it to this point, even if interest rates are at the right level now, I've often said that in Europe, I think they're too high for the economic situation that we face. Martin is saying, if they persist with this higher for longer, that we're not going to cut rates for ages narrative, they're going to make a mistake because the economic conditions, even if they don't warrant it right now, will very quickly, because of these kinds of data releases that you were highlighting there in Ireland and elsewhere, are going to be consistent with the need to cut rates sooner rather than later. And he warned them, don't overdo it. What did you think of those pieces, Jim? Uh, yeah, well, uh, this perhaps is confirmation bias on my part, but uh, I found both uh, reports and articles uh, pretty credible. Um, the Goldman Sachs piece is re- is really interesting because uh, the, the headline or the title is the hard part is over, that central banks have most of the hard work done in terms of getting inflation under control. Um Goldman Sachs is actually quite upbeat about the global economy in 2024, believes, you know, there will be growth in household incomes, that there will be rate cuts in the second half of the year, and that China will benefit from the policy stimulus that's been injected. So while it's upbeat about the economic environment in 2024, probably more upbeat than I would inherently be at this point. But anyway, Despite that, they're saying that the case for interest rate cuts from the third quarter on will be compelling. But interestingly, it says, uh, well, I think this is really interesting, that interest rates, you know, when they start coming down again, um, they will return to the pre-global financial crisis equilibrium levels rather than the level of interest rates we've been living with since the global financial crisis back in 2008, 2009. That's massive. That's massive because people might recall, I'm sure they do, that interest rates were basically zero. Yes, that's it, you see. Uh, So the expectation that we will return to a zero interest rate policy environment, uh, Goldman Sachs believe, is not going to happen. And I would tend to agree with that, I have to say. Sorry, I'm confused now. They're saying that we will return to um, the pre... We will be returning to the pre-global financial crash. So okay. in other words, interest rates will be higher for the first people. Okay. Because so, the they... zero interest rates post-dated the financial crisis, not pre-dated. Yes. Yes. Okay, yes. so that we're going back to that, Brian. Um, yeah. Okay, I'm going to put my, my neck out here and say that and I'm going to do a five-year forecast rather than a five-minute forecast. Oh, uh, my God. And uh, on the assumption that uh, people will have gotten completely fed up with us in five years' time and that we will not be remembered. Um, Who knows? Uh, That I think that we will go back to that zero rate environment. I think that all of the conditions that have been, that were around, that generated those zero interest rates are going to come back. Lots of reasons for that. Um, I look at the stagnating European economy. I look at the outlying, uh, you know, the the real outlier that is the US economy. I think that that is unsustainable. And I do think that the US economy is going to come back. The Chinese economy is in big trouble, Jim. 
big trouble. Uh, Japan's managed to get something going, but not very much. And so I think the sources of economic growth are going to be noticeable by their absence on a five-year view, and the interest rates are going to come crashing right down over five years. Yeah. Can I just say one thing about the Goldman Sachs piece? I said that uh, they believe next year China will benefit from the the policy stimulus that we've seen. Uh, But, and I didn't mention this point, they also go on to say, which is agreeing with what you were saying, that the multi-year slowdown in China will continue you know, there are structural forces at play uh, that will um, damage growth. But anyway, that's the Goldman Sachs view of the world. Um, you know, reasonably upbeat about the global economy in 24, more upbeat than I would be at this point, but also suggesting that from Q3 next year, interest rates start to come down. Martin Wolf, the title of his piece in the Financial Times is The Case for Loosening is Getting Stronger. Um, He's basically saying that events will have the last word and that if core inflation quickly falls towards target, they will have to loosen policy. And he warns against a return to sub-target inflation and pushing on a string monetary policy. He believes that both of those outcomes would be highly undesirable, but that the risks of both those happening much sooner than central banks would be prepared to admit or recognize it are much higher. Okay. So basically, you know, he is making a very strong case, particularly in Europe, that interest rates will have to come down. I love his use of language, actually. He says in relation to the United States that the combination of strong growth, low unemployment, and falling inflation is immaculate disinflation. I well, love it's, the term. And, and it's nothing. It's a combination of things that nobody would have forecast this time last year. And he admits he didn't himself, okay? Uh, But he then goes on to say that in the euro area, it looks a lot less immaculate. Oh, yeah. We're going to get deflation. We're going to get pushing on a monetary string in Europe at some point over the next few years uh, because Europeans have lost interest in economic growth. Uh, They... I don't know why. It's... it's, Pre-Brexit, Jim, you and I used to be big critics critics of European economic policies generally and we we always fretted about the future of of Europe from an economic perspective and I think we're heading back to those days again and I think the ECB is creating a rod for its own back and I do think that over five years not one year but over five years Irish mortgage holders can look to an awful lot of interest rate relief coming through that's my view for what it's worth probably not very much but there we are yeah, Martin Wolf's final comment, which is where I think we leave it, is that basically uh, central banks should not fight a war for too long. Absolutely. One of the things that I would point to to suggest that uh, the inflation story is going to help central bankers is the behaviour of the oil price. Really important at the moment from both an economic and a geopolitical point of view. The economics of the oil price are always very clear that lower oil prices are good for economic growth, not good for the environment, but they are good for economic growth and positive for, for inflation when oil prices, energy prices generally are falling. And in the just in the last few days, Jim, there's been a big, big fall in oil prices. It wasn't that long ago we were talking about them going through the key $100 a barrel level. The um, important US benchmark for oil, it's called West Texas Intermediate, is currently trading at $73.7 a barrel. That's a lot lower than 100. And that's very, very good news from both an inflation and a growth point of view. 
Um, and so that reinforces my my optimism about what central banks should be doing, not necessarily my optimism about what central banks, particularly the ECB, will do. So it's going to remain very, very interesting. Shall we call it there, Jim? Yeah, we will, Chris. And um, I'm glad we are not videoing this that is just audio because in the middle of that podcast, um, you may have heard a thud. Uh, I spilled a bottle of water all over myself and my desk. So thankfully, the listeners won't be able to see that. So, That's an image that I do not want to conjure with. Jim. No, you don't. Listen, great to talk again. I look forward to our next conversation. And our next conversation, as you rightly flagged earlier on, is with Noah Smith, polymath, public intellectual, brilliant guy. Uh, he's written a very interesting piece on Ireland, as well as a whole host of other interesting pieces. So uh, listeners, please watch out for that pod. See you, Jim. See you, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. Substack.com are on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.